I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Happy October, my favourite of all the months. Is it? Absolute favourite month, hands down favourite month. Is it because it's Halloween? Um, no, it's because <laughs> so you can go of... trick-or-treating again. Do you go as a pumpkin or bake you go as a pumpkin? <laughs> no, of course I go as some um, sexy witch or whatever. <laughs> um, it's my favourite month because um, I like the burnished autumnal colours i like the nip in the air i like hunkering down and watching films i like knee-high boots and i actually uh, i'm i'm desperate to buy a new autumn wardrobe and i can't because i don't think i've told you this i'm on a spending ban until january the first are you yeah farley and i made a pact because your uh, clothes shopping got a little bit out of control a little bit a little bit much yeah farley and i (laughs) dolly was the ultimate consumer this summer do you remember when we were Pandora and i went out for cocktails and i got an email saying like oh your dpd delivery will arrive blah blah blah." and you were like doll this is a bit much and i was like i know and then a text came up from the spanish bandu turk waving like we tried you today And then I think you got like a net porter on our. <laughs> she also tried us to get go via Zara to return some r- ridiculous thing she bought um, on our way to have a drink, and I was like, "That's absolutely not the intent of this evening." And no. you said that that put it back in your bag. You said that that dress made me look like the emoji poo. <laughs> yeah, and it did. Anyway, so yeah, Farley and I made a pact that we weren't going to spend from September the first to January the first, and it's actually so strict. It's 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 like um, can't wait to see how that one lasts. Well, I've done okay so far. I haven't bought anything so far. You're allowed to buy necessities, but we're also not allowed to enable each other. We're not allowed to browse and um, we're not allowed to really comment on clothes. Those are really strict rules. Yeah. It's because we just became too obsessed with, you know, fashion filling the deep void of loneliness, basically. So we decided <laughs> it was better to face no, I, that I, I, do, on. I do understand that because I have quite strict rules about buying. I'm only allowed to buy... One item a week. One item a week. But I don't ban browsing. Oh, it's, quite, it's all banned. It's like the sartorial version of A Handmaid's Tale. Well, we've we realised that we just... We'd created a culture, particularly with us, but in our group of friends, where it was just like... It was so capitalist like every time we saw each other we'd be like oh I like that dress where's that from oh it's in the sale and we're like we just need to like try and have a bit of space so in our conversation I'm anti-capitalist until January yes I'm living in a yurt um, and living off the land if you need <laughs> you, me you are quite um Octobery though if you were reincarnated it would be as a knee-high boot I take that as an enormous compliment thank you <laughs> what's your favorite month oh probably July or August I love, and I know lots of people want to escape it, but I love London in the summer. I love nothing more than sitting in a pub garden, having a glass of rosé or five. Oh, can we do that after? Strolling around. You've made me want mulled wine, actually. And we've both been a bit ill, so actually some mulled wine 
would be quite nice. CJ, get on the case. <laughs> I read a quote this week that I think you will also really like, Dolly. Uh, Claire Foy, in an interview with The Guardian magazine, said of her anxiety, All your shit, and everybody has shit, it doesn't go away. It's still there, but I guess I don't believe in it so much anymore. I used to think that this was my lot in life, to be anxious, and that I would struggle and struggle and struggle with it, and that it would make me quite miserable, and that I'd always be restricted. But now I'm able to disassociate myself from it more. I know that it's just something I have, and that I can take care of it myself. I think that's really great of her, to be honest about that, because I think there's such a danger with the with the culture that we're in that that we think that the kind of the acquisition of stuff, be it fame or money or a husband or a child or all the things that Claire Foy has, that somehow anxiety just melts away with the accumulation of all those things. But actually, I think the thing that's not talked about enough, and it was my friend Vanessa Kirby who said this actually, Hughes plays the sister of Claire Foy in The Crown. She said to me, the higher you climb, the windier it gets. And I think about that all the time. I always assume that the more things that you get that you want and the further you progress in life, the easier things get. But I think what isn't spoken about, particularly we never think about this in the context You're of still famous and successful. Well, beyond that, I think that with the acquisition of every new thing <laughs> comes 10 other things to stress out about. So that's the side of like the fairy tale of success in all areas of life that we're not told about. Speaking of the old angsty wangsty, I've been off uh, Instagram this week. I deleted it Sunday lunchtime and will reinstall it Friday. Uh, same with Twitter as well, although you keep sending me links to Twitter, so it keeps opening again. Oh, I'm like, sorry. No. Sorry. No, it's all right. Um, it's fine. I'm not putting anything out there. I've played around with my consumption, quote unquote, before, so I don't feel mentally panicked without it. But it's amazing how no matter how many social media detoxes or hiatuses you go on the physical impulse is still there it's like your body Mm. has no memory for it Mm. because every time I pick up my phone my phone my finger goes to where the Instagram app used to be and then I think all right and I'm trying to stay off Twitter too so I put my phone back again and then I go and do something else which is great yeah it's actually pretty topical as Matt Hancock the health secretary told the observer this week that he is calling upon the government for social media guidelines like they do with drinking Mm. he totally bans his kids from using it including his daughter who's 11 so presumably there's some pressure there as children now sign up to Instagram as fetuses and Zadie probably has her own account filled with pictures of jelly cap bunnies and her own feet <laughs> and he thinks with rules it'll be easier for those parents who find it so hard to resist screen time because yeah. parents do say they, they really don't know how to battle with their children over it brings to mind older Kirsty Allsop mm. and um, they say everyone should just smash it against the table right? <laughs> well then don't be provocative Dolly <laughs> and then uh, and Matt Hancock says the parents would then be able to say well the rules say that you shouldn't be able to use social media for more than a certain time totally in the same home. way that you say no you can't have a cigarette until you're 16 well I quite like the idea of social media being turned into units like alcohol so yeah. 2.5 units for a large glass of wine or one Instagram binge yeah Seeing Giles Corrin's Twitter meltdown of this weekend, I think it's mandatory that we all look at our own consumption of social media and how it affects us, whether we work in the media or not. I did an event last Thursday night um, about my book, and at the end there were questions, and someone asked about social the, the relationship that I have with social media. And I said, I'm definitely an addict, I think. I am an addict. I don't think you're as bad as you think, but... I think it affects people in different ways. Yes. So I think Ollie, my husband, uses Instagram more than you, but it's surface. Mm. It doesn't go... Yeah, that's what I was going to... Because I asked the audience, I said, I think I'm an addict. 
how many people here think they're addicted and it was like flipped it back interactive it was i was like you know this is a safe space and it was like half the crowd and i was like i think you're lying (laughs) i think you're lying i love this this is a safe space guys but and then i'm just gonna go blab about it on my podcast but then i thought after i was like maybe i shouldn't have said that because maybe actually the way that i metabolize social media the way it affects me Maybe it's not as potent for other people. The thing that I... The, the main problem with me... But also, you're a thinker. So, overthinker, yeah. So you you identify sort of everything that happens in your life. So it might be that a different person wouldn't think they were addicted, but they definitely think it played quite a large part yes. in their life, and maybe it shouldn't. Yes. You're quite um, extreme with your, like when you police yourself behaviour. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, the fact that you're not spending till January the 1st. <laughs> and then there was that time, remember, that you were getting up at 6am. You always bring that up. I know it was short-lived. I you were very happy up. when you were doing it. Um, yeah, but I, it's different as well. You just wake up with the locks. <laughs> I wish I could still do that now. The problem is you can do that, but then you have to be such a bore because you have to go to bed at 10 o'clock. <gasps> I do have to do that. Well, what, why aren't you up doing Pilates? It's such then Pandora. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the thing with social media that I find is that everyone, the addiction that I have that's unhealthy, I think is quite different to everyone else's. So when I speak to people with Farley's addiction, she was like, I'm, I spend too much on Instagram. It makes me realise I, I don't... Outing Farley left I, right and centre today. <laughs> Sorry, Farley. I know you're listening. But her thing is like, it makes me want stuff that I don't have. It's like the acquisition thing. For other people I know, it's the comparative Comparison. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my big thing is, it's, is the narcissism thing. So it just makes, like, sometimes I go onto my own Instagram page and just read it like a best-selling book. I love your honesty. But do you know what I mean? I'll go back. Or sometimes I go onto my Twitter and I pretend like I don't know myself. And I read my... And I'm like, I can't oh, tell if I was just laughing like? or just, like, genuinely shocked by Charlie's I'm Charlie, I know. No, it's I, lo- disgusting I love you saying that. But that's the, pro- that's the problem. It's very narcissistic to obsess over how you come across. And that was the issue for me. What's your issue? The comparative thing? No, uh, not the comparative thing. Um, being immersed in other people's worlds. Mm. I have a bit of a problem with, like, um, absorbing other people's lives and things that go wrong in them so I'm really flawed by uh other people's bad news mm. or stresses that someone else might have mm. so you um, come off actually very like altruistic and empathetic <laughs> no, out, out of this to. conversation I don't mean to because I'm definitely very solipsistic um and I definitely personalize things which is egocentric and I laugh because it's really true when you say that the new thing to say now is people going I come across as an extrovert but actually I'm a real <laughs> introvert but I am um, I really am if I spend too much time with other people or I um, look through the window at other people's lives too Mm. much, I'm left very empty and lost. Mm. So, and you know that of me, like my obsession with airplaning and I love being at home on my own. Um, So I, for me, it's kind of just, it's just, you know, cutting, trying to simplify, trying to streamline, Mm. trying to be present with my baby or with my work or with the book I'm reading. Mm. You know, time and time again, we get asked how we read so much because there's tons of things we're constantly trying to sort of adjust in our lives. And that's the thing as well that's the the real tragedy beyond me and my stupid narcissism. That's a tragedy. Actually, that's a real tragedy. (laughs) The real tragedy of social media, and this is the reason why I did come off in August, and now I've got a system in place that's made it much healthier for me and less compulsive. But the real tragedy is 
you and I, as are most people, are really ravenous for real life. And and that is, there's no doubt about it. Like, social media robs that of Ravenous for real life. But we are. like I love that as a phrase. You want to read, sort of stole us of Sadie Smith, I want to read lots and I want to meet lots of people. I want to listen to lots of things and I want to have lots of experience on this earth. And, like, the sad thing is, like, that is being taken from us. Yeah. That's being stolen from us by social media. And that's something that I think we are all trying to grapple with now. Absolutely. Sound words. So see you back on Instagram on January 1st? <laughs> no, just Friday. <laughs> I'm really interested in the debate about whether the Nobel Peace Prize should be taken away from Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi. It's really disappointing for so many people because she used to be this really inspirational leader. She used her $1.3 million prize money from the Nobel Fund to establish a health and education trust for the Burmese people and she pledged a commitment to pacifism in 2007. She said, I do not hold to non-violence for moral reasons but for political and practical reasons. So it's to so many people's devastation that she's not doing anything to resist or to legislate um, or stop the endless atrocities against the Rohingya people, which the UN have now officially called a genocide. And as such, she's been stripped of her honours by the London School of Economics and the US Holocaust Museum. But the Nobel Committee have been reluctant to remove her adorning because they say that prizes are awarded for past achievements and it's up to the recipients to safeguard their reputation. I find that really interesting because it's obviously a policy that they really value and it's a really unusual one, though I do disagree. What are your thoughts, Dolly? Yeah, I think it's interest, an interesting and quite complicated stance, I think. I think because it's an award that's seen as quite esoteric and so achievement-specific that it's more acceptable to remove the context of the winner or prior or subsequent wrongdoings from the prize itself. But it doesn't really work for me either, particularly when it's specifically a peace prize. Exactly, the irony of it being Mm. a peace prize. And of course, there has been masses in the news about Natasha Ednan Laparus, who died after eating a pret sandwich in Heathrow Airport in July 2016. It's all coming out now as the inquest is currently underway. I've read a lot of comment pieces on it and all anyone can say is what an avoidable tragedy because despite multiple warnings to Pret to label their food more fulsomely, they were able to resist this due to a small loophole which states that if foodstuffs are made on premises, then labelling is not required in the same way as if they are made off-site. The parents are alleging that Pret did not adequately label the sandwich and as a result, Natasha, who had a severe allergy to sesame, died after consuming a sandwich that did not, according to the label, state that it contained sesame. The dough did. Whatever the outcome of the inquest, Pret are now under tremendous pressure, as hopefully all food chains and retailers are, to offer full disclosure on the officially recognised 14 allergens. Pret have the information in a folder in their store, but not on the labels of the foodstuffs themselves. What we will now see, I think, is more knowledge of the 14 allergens and being labelled properly. Did you know what the 14 allergens are? I didn't either, and I googled them. So unless you make all of your foodstuffs on site, which hopefully will be no longer a loophole, um, you have to label on your foodstuffs if they contain cereals which contain gluten, crustaceans, eggs, fish, peanuts, soybeans, milk, nuts, as well as peanuts, celery, including celeriac, celeriac, mustard, sesame, 
sulfites, which can be a preservative in dried fruit, lupin, which can be found in types of bread, pastries and pastas, and mollusks. So hopefully some progress will come out of Natasha's tragic death. In lighter news, Nick Farmer, I think one of our three male listeners of the Hyder, got in touch to alert us to a phenomenon being described as winter vagina. My God, you dug into ye old mailbag and what you came up with is a letter about the winter vagina from a man named Nick. Yes, hello Nick and thank you Nick. Mary Burke, a former NHS midwife and a senior clinical nurse, has warned that, but also I think our listeners should be aware of this, has warned that in the dry cold air vaginas can enter drought mode. Be careful Charlie. It's like they're a car. (laughs) Her at-home remedies include drinking apple juice, which is rich in phytostrogen, Phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens. which can reverse the hormonal imbalance that causes vaginal dryness. You familiar with those things? <laughs> Eating greens and watermelon. Oh, and drinking, watermelon. There's lots of that at this time of year. Drinking coconut water. Presciently, a man claimed on Reddit earlier this year that he was reaping the benefits of what he called summer penis. Oh, Dolly! In a post in which he asked his fellow men if their schlong appeared larger in the warmer months. Doctors confirmed that heat causes blood vessels to widen and appendages to swell. That's so disgusting. Did Nick tell you this or did you just find this? No, that, that I found that. So text. you followed up on I his... I followed up, yes. Was he writing in to warn us against winter vaginas? It wasn't... Or more because he found the winter vagina comical? It wasn't was so... Was he ma- laughing about our winter vaginas? He wasn't worried about them. He wasn't worried about so our vaginas specifically. He was mocking us for our winter vaginas. He, I, think it was, I think it was part warning, part titillation... It, it wasn't... It, I mean, I wouldn't call it titillating, <laughs> except for mildly revolting. Um, but it's an expensive thing, clearly, a winter vagina, because coconut water is it's pretty elitist. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know where anyone's going to go find watermelon at this time of year. Uh, but good luck to you. Good luck to you. Let us know how your uh, winter vaginas are um, coming along. Speaking not of seasonal genitalia... I was sad to see that two of the chief campaigners of Hollywood's Me Too movement last year, who were formative in bringing around the colossal cultural moment that we are, you know, navigating our way through the aftermath of, are now publicly fighting with one another. Actor Rose McGowan apologised to fellow actor Asia Argento, who lost her job on X Factor after she was accused of sexually assaulting a 17-year-old former co-star for her comments, which Rose McGowan has admitted contained a number of facts which were not correct. Asia then Instagram storied a new revenge tattoo of a bloody dagger and tweeted, now go on, live your life and stop hurting people, will you, Rose? I just find it so disappointing as it really gives weight to that misogynistic cliche that all women are bitches and we can't help but bicker with one another and undermine everything we're fighting for. And the thing is that part of that Seems true. A really important part of Me Too, which those women were and are, has descended into infighting. I think there's so much trauma, both old and fresh, that's being lived through in the wake of these uh, public revelations. Not being believed, an accuser's legitimacy being examined, certain accusers being more palatable or believable or limelight-friendly than others. I think it's sad, but not surprising that it can end in infighting. I'm just avoiding certain male commentators like the plague. 
Mm. Um, slightly surprised Rod Little hasn't uh, weighed in yet in the uh, Sunday Times. Anyway, the movement is about more than those women now, so I just hope it doesn't damage the rest of what's going on with women speaking up. I don't think it does, and I don't think it undermines their work and bravery in the movement either. Yeah, well, it comes back to our... our thing doesn't it about you know you can be many things Mm. and you can do good work and Mm. bad work and something that we heard or read about Trevor Noah being maybe you can be 90 it was when Mm. all those jokes came out that he'd said maybe you can be 90% good so that's something I keep coming back to and also let us not forget like these are not women that have had an uncomplicated and easy time of it yeah and that manifests in all different ways absolutely last thing I want to share with you via the week Hedgehogs have halved in the last two decades. Oh, no! I realise that sounds like they have literally halved. (laughs) What I mean is the numbers have halved. Lots of baby ones were brought into rescue centres in the summer as it was just too damn hot for them. Is that why that they're depleting? They're too hot? No, they're also depleting because rural areas are being... um, Built on. Urbanised, yeah. I can imagine you with a hedgehog. I love hedgehogs. Or a um, tortoise. Oh my god, I'd love both of those things. They're one quite day, no maintenance a tortoise. Yeah, I would. Maybe can you get one of those giant ones that I can ride on? <laughs> they live till like they're 130. Yeah, I do really like the idea of if I have children and grandchildren that you can have this pet that kind of lives beyond all the generations. And I like their wrinkly little faces. <laughs> they are so sweet. What have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I have totally roared through Lily Allen's memoir, My Thoughts Exactly. It's just as good as everyone says it is. It's incredibly raw and you really live through an enormous amount of tragedy that she's had in her life and in such a close succession. There was one night where I read it right before I went to bed and I couldn't sleep that night and I only realised the next day it was because I was so disturbed and so moved by the incredibly vivid descriptions that she writes of her experiences and her emotional landscape I mean I think it's quite obvious when you read it that this is a person who has survived a war basically who's who's just at a moment of peace finally because the fluency with which she can talk about herself and the self-awareness that she employs when talking about her mistakes and the way that she joins the dots, it for me, it's so obviously someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about their actions and joining the dots and someone who's quite therapised and someone who's, um, who's trying to make sense of their behaviour through a, through a very tumultuous time. So I think it was probably the perfect time for her to be reflecting in a memoir. It's heartbreaking in its honesty, particularly talking about a childhood that seemed quite unboundaried and quite frantic and all over the place. Teenage heartbreak, insecurities, her weight issues, the death of her baby, her issues with drugs, problems in her marriage... You get the feeling that this is someone who has not only lost everything, but who's been really torn apart and examined in a public sphere because she she writes with this sort of fearlessness that, that she's almost got nothing else to lose with her honesty. The most potent part for me is the way she chronicles her public treatment. Paranoia is peppered throughout her story from the moment she gets famous and mistrust. And, you know, there's one point where she finally seeks help and she gets a therapist and she finds out that her therapist has told a load of people 
that Lily Allen's one of her clients. So you just, as you read, I think that's why I struggled to sleep one one night after I read it, because as you read it, you're just panicked for her because all these avenues just close off. She she loses her family at one point. You know, she, she mm. one by one loses her friends. She loses everyone she works with. And she just feels, and then she gets stalked. That's one of the bits that, again, is really traumatising. Mm. Uh, and she writes in such harrowing detail of how she's stalked over a period of seven years and how she's completely ignored by police who are the people who are meant to be looking after mm. her so it's a intense read but it's powerful it's very powerful and it's funny too there's a bit where she's talking about um cheryl cole and a public spat that they have and she talks I remember that yeah she talks very honestly about her own struggles with finding her own identity as a woman because obviously when you're going through your 20s you're working out who you are and making lots of mistakes and trying to kind of carve that out but she had to do that all in the public eye which is just unthinkably how embarrassed would you be imagine now thinking of all the mistakes you've made and all the things you've done in your 20s don't ask if me that to do was that. all <laughs> if that was all documented on the front of news of the, the world floor. It's, it's kind of unthinkable when you yeah, think back to how i behave yeah. but there's a bit where she's she talks a lot about her her relationship with her own sexuality and how it took her a very long time to kind of enjoy sex and inhabit her sexuality and you know, make it more than just pleasing the other person. And she talks about one of the reasons she thinks she was so horrible to Cheryl Cole is that Cheryl Cole seemed like very sexually liberated and she was perfect and she was beautiful and whatever. And Lily Allen hadn't had an orgasm. (laughs) There's this one bit where she's like, I'm sorry, Cheryl, that I was such a bitch. It's because I hadn't come yet. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, it's kind of undercut with that kind of, that kind of very dark, dark humor i also went to go see the wife on sunday evening at the cinema oh i'm jealous mm. i went on my own uh, to the camden odeon and i indulged in a new ben and jerry's flavor at the ben and jerry's counter oh my god which is I was called... broken on sunday night but i sort of wish i'd um been there as well is there have you got a cinema near here I, i'd come to you on a sunday night and we could do that there must be one around me i mean it's 2018 <laughs> Um, but I must just briefly mention this Ben and Jerry's um, flavour um, because it really was special. It's the new flavour and it's <laughs> it's called birthday cake flavour. You would love it. And I don't even really have a sweet tooth. I wish a fan of your column saw you and was like, oh my God, she really is this like On really brand. liberated single woman just going to the cinema on her own. On a Shamelessly going to the cinema on her own on a Sunday night, eating ice cream. She's filling all the tropes, but look at her doing it bravely and confidently. Thanks, babe. Do you know what? It was quite a bookish crowd, actually, because it's quite a strange... I was. It's an interesting film yeah. to... Cinemize? Yes. Well, very nice verb there. I don't think like that's that. Fair, yeah. Um, yes, and actually, one of the things that I think is really hard about particularly that book is for anyone who doesn't know, The Wife is written by Meg Wallitzer, who's one of Pandora and I, our favourite writers. We had Meg Wallitzer on an author special talking about the female persuasion um, a few months ago. The Wife, I think we read about a year ago, is a brilliant, brilliant book about uh, a woman who called Joan, who is the long-suffering and seemingly subservient wife of a literary giant called Joe, who we open the book reading that he's just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And the thing that I think is difficult with a film adaptation of that world is that the activity and the craft and the process of writing is so boring to see visually. Mm. It's not like when you watch someone 
honing of the skill of dancing or singing. And there's not tons of activity in that book. No, no. But it's really, really good. It's a really good film. Glenn Close is just mesmerising. I could stare at her face and watch how her face expresses itself all day. She's such an insanely talented actor. And she plays so many layers of the character and does it so artfully that she somehow subtly manages to capture all the complex messages of feminism that Meg Wallitzer kind of layers into that book through her prose. A fun casting fact for you, Annie Maud Stark plays the younger Glenn Close because they show flashbacks to Mm -hmm. Glenn Close's character when she was younger. And I could not believe how good the casting was. She has exactly the same icy blue eyes and her manner and her poise are just identical to Glenn Close. And I only realised after the film finished and I googled her that she is in fact Glenn Close's daughter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Haven't Meryl Streep and... um... Mamie Gummer, is that the name of her daughter? Haven't they done that before? I think I might be making that up. I think it's such a clever casting decision because it added this, without me even realising it, added this really poignant echo through the kind of passage of time of the film's narrative. It felt like such a clever casting decision. Uh, So, yes, I highly recommend the one. Would you say read the book before you watch the film? Yes, read the book before you watch the film. You should always read the book before you watch the film. Um... I can't think of an instance when you shouldn't read the book before you watch the film. Not in the case of Breakfast at Tiffany's, I'd say. Um, Actually, I don't think I'm ever going to get round to reading Vanity Fair, and I will happily watch that on the BBC. It is such a long book. Do you know I still... Thackeray? I still haven't read um, The Great Gatsby. Oh, that's an an easy read. I should read that, because I didn't... The film didn't do much for me. Yeah, we've gone on a bit of a waffly tangent. We have. There. We've gone on a uh, loosey goosey tangent. On oh, a loosey goosey Belgian waffle. Have so yes, the wife recommend the film, recommend the book even more. What have you been watching and reading? I have now finished work? Killing Eve, and the finale is so damn good. God, it the really me- swallowed you up that program. Have you not started watching it yet? Every time I go to watch it, I'm not quite in the right headspace. I feel like now there's too much pressure, and you're not going to yeah, watch it because yeah. I've no, been I've in got, that. No, place. I have to watch it. It, oh my God, the music should win an award. And that's coming from me, who, as you know, could name about three bands. Nearly had Barbie Girl as her wedding song. (laughs) My God, you are as obsessed with that as I am (laughs) with the fact that you temporarily used to get up at 6am. Anyway, it was absolutely brilliant and I needed something else to fill the gap. So I chanced upon, on the advice of my best friend Lucy, who works in film, a gorgeous film which came out earlier this year called Tully, starring Charlize Theron as an exhausted mother of three with a newborn baby who reluctantly allows her rich brother to pay for a night nanny for her, who turns out to be this 26-year-old sort of Mother Teresa in high-waisted jeans. It's the most emotional, evocative film. Lucy recommended it to me as she said that she'd never watched a film that so accurately depicted the haze of the early days with a newborn baby. Mm. There's this incredible montage of the first few weeks when you literally feed every hour. And it actually made me feel nostalgic for those times, which is frankly yeah. insane. Yeah. Uh, but my, that's the power of, of something being power depicted of great film. so accurately. Or power of a malleable woman. Um, <laughs> my husband groaned when I selected it as he thought it would be some sort of rom-com, but he actually loved it as it's very thoughtful and dry and sharp and sad and funny all at the same time, which isn't surprising because it's written by Diablo Cody, who famously wrote Juno. Mm. Which is just, you know, that script still mm. absolutely brilliant. And Ellen mm. Page is still... I mean, 
I feel like you could watch it again and again and it, you know, that hamburger phone never gets old. Um, a lot of it is based on her own experiences as a mother of three children. There's also a controversial twist did not go down that well with um, reviewers. I won't give that away as I've given things away before on this podcast and got in uh, trouble. Um, oh but people get very upset about spoilers, don't they? They really get their ninnies in a twist. <laughs> you don't You don't have to have had it. I feel like I always have to say this. You don't have to have had a baby to enjoy this film. But if you have, it will take on a... If you have recently as well, it will take on a particularly um, meaningful resonance. And I just absolutely loved it. Mm. And I found it on Skybox Office for anyone else looking. Lots of journalism recommendations from the week. Firstly, a piece on the relationship between Jackie Anassis and her sister, Lee Radziwill, in the Times magazine. Have you read much about these sisters, Dolly? No. Oh, I think you'd love them, and I think you'd, I think you'd love this piece, and actually I think you'd love their story in general. I'm fascinated by Jackie O, obviously. Well, f- famously, there was a lot of rivalry between the sisters. Lee was forced to live in Jackie's shadow, and I didn't realise that Lee had an affair with Aristotle Anassis, before Jackie then married him after her own marriage to JFK who had obviously constantly philandered and she took up with him for security Lee says you know mm. she she lives in this vastly exposing um, world where everything she does is analysed and she needs someone who can physically and fiscally take care of her mm. someone who will build a fortress around her mm. yeah, but, she's a princess yeah but Anastas never stopped loving the opera singer Maria Callas who he told repeatedly that he regretted marrying Jackie um, he had a real problem with how much money she spent Jackie used to buy masses of couture with her monthly allowance of $30,000 <gasps> quite a lot in 1969 God. and then she'd sell it on to make more money uh, she's very entrepreneurial of her so he, <laughs> so he reduced her allowance to $20,000 anyway the, the piece was an extract from a new book coming out called The Fabulous Bouvier Sisters The Tragic and Glamorous Lives of Jackie and Lee and it sounds fascinating oh I'd love that it must be weird, though, for Lee Radziwill. Is she still alive? She's 85, but she's very much mm. still alive. Mm. And she had a very successful career in PR and interior decoration. Not irrelevant, but additional fact. Jackie Onassis, her engagement ring that was given to her by JFK, I think is my favourite piece of jewellery of all time. I don't know what it looks like. My, I'll Google it. It's so perfect. I love it. But obviously I'm not allowed to... Look at it or browse it because of the spending ban until January the 1st. <laughs> it's like an emerald and a diamond with two diamond leaves around the side. Yeah, I'm just having a look at it. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's huge. Is that why you love it? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I also loved my former colleague Alice Edwards' piece for Porter magazine on how to bear a life of grief after her mother, sister and grandmother died in the Thai tsunami of 2004, which took almost a quarter of a million lives. There's been another terrible tsunami this week, um, with over 1,350 people killed at the time of the record. This was an absolutely appalling tragedy to hit Indonesia in 2004. Alice writes about her relationship with grief as it is a relationship rather than something one-off that she experienced in the immediate aftermath of her loss. Grief ebbs and flows. It mutates according to the arcs of her life. For instance, becoming a mother awakened in her a particularly painful bout of grief because she realised how much her mother must have loved her found it very sad to read but it's such an important piece and I felt very proud of her as it cannot have been easy Mm. to write and that's in the current print edition of Mm. Porter. 
I was riveted by a series of accounts in the Guardian magazine this weekend about what it was like to work for Harvey Weinstein. I sort of thought I'd read enough about this revolting oaf of a man, but they were fascinating for reasons other than Harvey. One former employee wrote that Bob, his brother, was famously more terrifying than Harvey. Really? I had no idea. He once stood in front of her desk and systematically broke all of the pencils in the pencil pot on her desk one by one. Can you imagine anything more terrifying with that mounting Mm. anticipation of what's going to come when those pencils are broken? Bob is often left out of the public narrative except to exonerate himself. Um, He said he didn't know anything about his brother's transgressions and that he was, you know, completely horrified. But when you read this extract, and actually in light of other things I've read recently, you can't help but think you knew. Mm. And you're in a different way. You sound like you're just as bad as him. Another account was from a woman called Zelda who worked in Miramax's London office. And she had an assistant, a young assistant who Harvey tried to rape and she immediately you know stood by her assistant and said we must take you know report it Mm. and she told of the travesty of the NDA how it's which I think is something we see with super injunctions now how it's used to protect the people who don't need and shouldn't be protected Mm. Harvey insisted on being in the room when they signed the NDA imagine anything more intimidating also needlessly intimidating and there was just an extract from her that I'd love to read so the lawyer who negotiated the NDA was from Allen and Overy, who, which is one of the American magic circle firms. And I think they should be questioning the part that they played in this because she says that her and her assistant were locked in for 12-hour negotiation sessions, 5pm to 5am, not having a clue what was you know, going on half the time because neither of them are legal experts. So she writes, my goal now is to ensure that NDAs cannot be weaponized. I think that's a really interesting turn of phrase and used to hide criminal behavior. Law firms have been enabling questionable behavior and making money out of these agreements. And this is not just limited to sexual harassment. It is far more insidious within our work culture. My NDA would have been unenforceable, but this was never made clear to me. And I lived in fear of it for 20 years until last year. I felt I had been criminalized and that if I spoke, I would would be the one going to jail there will always be characters like Weinstein we can't deny the existence of charismatic sociopathic and dangerous characters they seem to people the top echelons of most businesses but as a society we have a responsibility to make sure that employees are protected and that if they are abused they have true recourse there is a place for NDAs but they too have become an immoral tool legally used to silence victims and I think that's really interesting do you know I've never even thought Me neither. of the part that that plays in these horrific stories that are covered up you know in terms of the responsibility of the legal figures absolutely and the the legal process itself Mm. and that's why Mm. I really enjoyed reading those um, extracts you can find them online and lastly this week I loved an interview with Esther Perel uh, but I can't remember where it was and I've searched Google to no avail and I actually can't find it but basically it was about how relationships should be constantly renegotiated and she offered up her own relationship which isn't something you get when you listen on the podcast series when she's um, giving therapy to other couples so her husband has decided he wants to paint a lot more which means he will be away from the family home in New York a lot which is where Esther is based so she says they are at a period of their life where they are negotiating and re-navigating a brand new chapter in their marriage afresh and I found that really inspirational the idea of marriage being a series of chapters because Mm. I definitely think I look at marriage as something quite static sometimes like Mm. well this is my role and this is yours and this is what you do and this is what I do and I think she was very uh, she's obviously very brave and liberated and progressive and thoughtful and all those things Um, otherwise she wouldn't be the therapist 
that she was. But I found that really inspiring. It actually reminded me of another really inspiring thing I read about marriage this weekend, um, and that was Mariella Frostrup's column on Sunday in the Observer magazine. With its misogynistic subtexts and a rising divorce rate, marriage doesn't have the best rap right now. So I really liked this from her. Much as I don't approve of our blind devotion to a perhaps outmoded way of getting the world to respect our relationship, neither do I believe that marriage has disruptive powers unless we bring them with us. Mm. And I think that's really interesting as well. It's not the institution itself Mm. necessarily, although sometimes it is. Um, It can be what we bring to that institution and the expectation we have of that When I interviewed um, Marianne Keyes, who she herself has been in a long and successful marriage with a lovely man called Tony and she said to me exactly what Esther Perel said that marriage she said I think you have about six different relationships within one marriage and you know for that reason she kind of said I want to make a case for it you know I think that understandably you do read so much cynicism and um, unpicking of marriage as an institution now and questioning whether it works but it works for you know works for a lot of people for a long time and if you can make it work that's a glorious thing i loved the way um esther talked about her her role as a therapist has changed over the last 30 years so in the 80s when she started out um it was kind of shameful to get divorced so people would come to her and say um he had an affair or she had an affair but Mm. we don't want to get divorced how can we prevent that Mm. now she says there's a kind of cultural moralizing that if someone cheats on you like how could you stay so Mm. now people come and say i feel embarrassed to stay with my partner Mm. because they've cheated Mm. like should i leave Mm. so that's really interesting to see the way that we flipped the idea of what a successful relationship is support for the high low comes from warner brothers and the film everyone is talking about a star is born a Star is Born marks Bradley Cooper's directorial debut as he stars alongside Lady Gaga in her first ever leading role in a major motion picture. The film, which tells the complex love story between two passionate artistic souls, has received a raft of five-star reviews to date, with Empire describing Bradley Cooper's performance as staggering and Time Out describing Lady Gaga as a revelation. A Star is Born features powerful, original music written by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, alongside a selection of incredibly talented artists which include Mark Ronson and all vocals were recorded live during the filming. I've been compulsively re-watching the film's trailer. It's sort of like a cinematic experience in itself. Um, It's completely amazing and it's made me so excited to see A Star Is Born. I've heard that their chemistry is sizzling and from the brief soupçon that I've had with the trailer, I would agree. I can't wait to watch it. It's in cinemas now across the UK. Thank you so much to Warner Brothers and A Star Is Born. This week, the editor of Cosmopolitan, Farah Store, told The Times magazine that the idea that women can have it all is a lie. The notion that I could have it all, or indeed would want it all, is a lie. A lie told to me by the very magazine I edited. Farah Store is the 39-year-old award-winning editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. Before that, she was the launch editor of Women's Health magazine. She recently published The Discomfort Zone, How to Get What You Want by Living Fearlessly. Which I recently read and recommended on the high-low. And she also did a great interview, which I listened to this week, 
with Emma Gannon for Emma's podcast, Control Out Delete, where she talks about discomfort being mandatory to success as something that galvanises us. I found the podcast really inspiring Mm. for loads of other reasons as well. And I actually texted Dolly Mm. saying, listen, listen Mm. to this. It's like the most kind of um, affecting. And um, yeah, I just found it really personally inspiring. And I think that any young women should listen to it. In the interview for the Times magazine, she spoke of how she and her husband, the journalist Will Storr, abandoned their plans for IVF treatment after deciding that having both a big career and a big family was a myth. She told the Times that she abandoned the struggle to have children in her mid-30s. She admitted to her husband that her quote-unquote ovarian ache was not strong enough to justify the sacrifices necessary to raise a family. Along the way, I'd been forced to make uncomfortable choices, she said. Getting to the top, I quickly discovered, was not so much about ambition and talent, but more about hard graft. With two big careers and a marriage to nurture, the fabric of our lives felt stretched to capacity. The notion that I could have or indeed would want it all was a lie. Pandora, as someone with both a baby and a career, how did you respond to this piece? I think what I found so interesting about this piece is when Farah revealed that even the woman that invented the concept or coined the concept of women having it all, i.e. breaking glass ceilings in the 80s and rearing a family and having a social life, didn't even believe in it herself. Helen Gurley Brown, the former editor of Cosmo and author of the cult 1982 memoir, Having It All, actually wanted to call her autobiography The Mouseburger, Um, which means a woman in a man's world struggling to make herself heard. But she caved very unhappily to her publisher who wanted to call it having it all. And Mm. one other thing that Farah says never gets mentioned, Helen didn't have kids. So if the woman who invented the concept didn't believe in it and didn't have kids, which is what having it all is often yes, founded upon. Traditionally, that's what you think yeah, it refers to. Yeah, it's not me being like she didn't have kids, therefore she got nothing to say. Yeah. I'm saying that, it, yeah, it's very much part of that kind of concept. Yeah. Then that sort of says everything, doesn't it? It's so interesting that this should be our topic this week, as it's something I was thinking about a lot reading Lily Allen's memoir. One of the mounting realisations of self that she has is that she needs to find a way to feel whole rather than divided. The divided female, again, is something I was going on about a couple of episodes ago after reading Jill Soloway's new memoir, uh, She Wants It, and she, she talks about the divided female a lot in it. It's the idea that a woman has to inhabit different parts of herself um, in autonomous ways and that none of these kind of fragmented bits of self can come together to form a whole person societally that we accept. That's exactly how I feel at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's at the crux of the challenges that modern women face with equality. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So it means if a woman is a mother, there's a very specific role she has to assume. She has to be nurturing, incredibly present with her child. She has to be selfless. If she's a successful career woman, then there's another role she has to dress up for. She has to be flawless and um, powerful and tough, maybe even slightly narcissistic. If she's a lover, then she needs to be sexualized and exciting. If she's a wife, she needs to be patient and giving. It means the concept of having it all is so much more of a difficult mountain to climb for a woman than a man, because it means having to be all these different people separately, and that one of these roles often undoes or undermines the other one. It's completely exhausting. I think that's a really 
uh, valid and valuable thing that you say because what's really mandatory is that we allow them to bleed into each other. Mm. And I remember... Mm. Exactly, exactly. That's what Lily Allen said in her book. Like, she should have been allowed to write an album about being a mother. Yeah, absolutely. She shouldn't have had to put on sexy face and suddenly be, you know, when she had two young children But by the same token, because I'm a mother now shouldn't mean that I have to write you know, change what I'm writing about, which was definitely an expectation that I, uh, that I felt was on me a little bit. What I definitely think is that we, we need, to, yeah, we need to allow the kind of bleeding of the roles. And I remember reading something shortly after I had my baby and I read it just before I was about to go out for dinner with my husband. I think it was the first time we'd left the baby in the evening and it was to celebrate our anniversary. It was maybe five or six weeks after having her I, I can't quite remember and it said in this in this hilarious thing I can't even remember if it was really old-fashioned but the advice certainly seemed quite old-fashioned saying you know when you go out for dinner with your partner don't talk about children like for the three hours or the two hours that you're at dinner like only talk about yourselves and I was like that's completely insane yes, and why yes. are you putting that kind of that pressure on you you've just become new parents you know of course we went out for dinner and we talked about the baby and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that because you don't you, the expectation that you will switch gears as soon as you leave the house and leave the baby in it is, is quite frankly madness and it really perpetuates an actually like very unhelpful mm. it's meant to be advice I didn't find that helpful but also there's no way that anyone's giving Ollie that advice like there's no way that someone's saying to Ollie like tell you what to be a really good husband and really exciting and to keep your marriage alive when you go out don't mention the baby it's it's only the woman that's being put in charge like being told that she has to be the captain of keeping that ship afloat as well as all the other ones yeah, as well yeah, I think that's probably right I read a review of Tully which is the film I mentioned that I loved this week um, earlier in the episode whenever I watch a film I always go and retrospectively read all the reviews um, and there was one in the Telegraph from earlier this year where Charlize Theron's character Marlowe is described as a homemaker and this just incensed me she's not a homemaker in the film she's clearly asked what she does by the nanny and she says she works in human resources she's on maternity leave Mm. as she just gave birth which is why she's at home but even if she was a stay-at-home mother does that make her a homemaker it's such an awful esoteric expression that really ties in to what you're saying about the splintered woman and actually the idea of her being both a feeder to her daughter and a sexual partner to her husband is something Marlowe finds really difficult she says I can't just switch it off and then I think well imagine if the poor woman knew she was being called a homemaker Mm. ovarian ache to borrow Farah's expression is something I'm reading a lot about at the moment and I think it's interesting that the way she frames and expresses that desire as something that was not quite enough of a pull not only to undertake the incredibly daunting challenge of bringing a human into the world and raising it and forming it into a person but also going through the often incredibly gruelling process of IVF Mm. I think I think another problem with the having it all question when you bring children into it is that deciding to have children is like no other decision that you will ever make. Not only can you not undo it, I just think more and more, I think practically it makes no sense, (laughs) particularly for the woman, when you view it as an on-paper decision. I've been having, before anyone starts drafting their angry email to me, hear me out on this, I've been having lots of conversations recently with friends who are starting to think about maybe starting a family and who were very overwhelmed by the prospect of it and it's been so interesting to me hearing them weigh up the pros and the cons because as I say on paper I just don't think that there are really 
many pros to having a baby. If you were to assess any other life-changing decisions such as moving jobs or moving country or moving house or breaking up with a partner or getting married, there are such clear-cut advantages and disadvantages. With having a baby, the question, particularly for a woman, is do you want to go through the physical trauma of pregnancy and birth? Do you want your body to change, perhaps your marriage to change, your identity to maybe alter, your career to maybe change, an enormous amount of your income to be spent on another human who you haven't even met yet? When you put it like that, why would you ever risk giving up a life in a home in a world that you've worked so hard to create for an abstract concept of a baby that doesn't yet exist? My friend Alex King interviewed Zadie Smith last year who touched on this and she said this thing which I always think about which is that having a baby is not a practical decision it's a primal one it is as far as Storm mentions in her interview driven by a deep urge or that kind of ovarian ache I'm glad you uh, slightly brought it back to a positive <laughs> positive note to, to end in, on. I, I think no I complete I, I agree with everything you're saying it's not practical on paper it's definitely a primal decision and I think I was thinking about it when you were saying that about if you were writing down the pros and the cons on paper then you wouldn't actually see any pros and it's true because the the only and engulfing pro is joy exactly but if you write down joy it's all emotional yeah practically it's a it's a, it's a drain on all, all resources I'm absolutely terrified of ever claiming that birth is transformative or that you can't understand unless you've had a baby quote unquote but the thing is much as I fear it and fear vocalizing it in case it sounds patronizing or exclusive it's true it is a seismic shift it is primal you have no control over any of it the pregnancy the birth the baby your brain and for someone deeply controlling like myself that's been both terrifying but also fascinating Mm. the concept of having it all is definitely something I've thought a lot about this year since I had my baby I've had a lot of changes in my life I moved house had a baby swapped quite a lot of the components of my job and I don't really talk about it but I've also had an enormous crisis of confidence and various other struggles that are very common in postpartum women um, which have made it difficult for me to enjoy my achievements although I will say crucially not my daughter I've learned that people very much judge you when it comes to having it all on paper I have a house a husband a baby and a career so there is the assumption that I must have it all and people keep telling me that I'm nailing it without actually asking how I am which I find very interesting and it's made me resolve even more actually not to be duped by someone's externality how someone looks how they are on paper um They might not have it all. For instance, I wouldn't ever put it on social media, but I've had chronic insomnia, which I can't even begin to describe the rigours of when you have a very young baby. And those people that you think of having it all might not feel like they're achieving very much at all. I've been guilty of using you, Dolly, as a yardstick of saying what you're accomplishing and feeling like I'm doing a poor job in my own career, which isn't fair on either of us but the thing is as much as I try and fight the inevitable cliches namely by going back to work far too soon not consciously but subconsciously trying to show myself in the world that I hadn't changed my hormones meant I was still high as a bloody kite when I went back to work you know I've I've birthed a human so I can't work live or feel the same as I did before Mm -hmm. at least not currently while she's still so young maybe not ever because I'm not the same woman and whilst I don't consciously feel like I'm striving to have it all I am 
aware that I'm terrified of letting anything drop, of, of stopping mm. to spin any of my plates, of ever missing a wedding, a Hindu, a christening, a work meeting, a doctor's appointment, a baby swimming lesson, a deadline. And I know that's just life as a working mother, but I didn't give myself any time to adjust to it and I'm new to it. Yeah, and the problem is this is like the the permanence of a baby. <laughs> it's not like you can try it out. Like you you're thrown into this state. And you need to respect that, I think. And this is like Not you. Not you <laughs> need to respect that. One, me, me, I need to respect this that. This is not the rehe- like this is the only you have to just get on with it. And I think that nothing else really in life do you are you thrown into something so enormous. You have to make a decision to ostensibly have it all and then that's it. There's no going back, really. I think what's interesting to me is how much of it is subconscious as well. Because I never consciously decided to have it all. I never mm. strove to have it all. I never consciously decided to not give myself any time in that baby bubble. I never consciously decided any of this. And maybe maybe the answer to everything, including on looking at what other people have or what you perceive for them to have, is we all need to be a bit more cognizant of... Um, the depth below mm. not just not just the surface mm. well that's why you know looping back to when we talk about social media at the top that's why i think we all need to just make a decision and understand that you sh- everyone shows be it on social media be it in a meeting be it you know in a social situation a small portion of what they're feeling and do you know what i kind of think that's okay I, that, I i'm totally fine I don't, with it i don't i'm not really ever you know i'm not an entirely closed book but equally i would be really mortified if someone who i wasn't close to saw me really struggling in a public area that's not something that i feel comfortable with so I you know it all comes back to not really having to I think we should all be sort of mature and thoughtful enough to realize exactly what you see is not you know you can't be like well Dolly was on amazing form so that must mean that she's you know she thinks she's absolutely got it all she's nailed it she's got it wrapped up in the bag let's never ask her how she is ever again yeah she's got it all I think it's really useful that Farah's store was honest about this process of weighing up life choices and ultimately saying no to one I don't think it's damaging or discouraging for her to share her story I think it's honest and I think women being truthful about their experiences can only be useful and important in my opinion from what I've seen and in terms of what I hope for myself at some point I think women can have it all I think you can have a relationship and friendships and a career and a family and make money and be personally fulfilled. The lie that we're told is that you can do it perfectly all of the time. Yes, you've hit the nail on the head with that. That makes me feel much better, what you just said. Although I would say I don't feel remotely depressed or dispirited or discouraged, and lots of other words that begin with dis, by what um, Farah was saying. Mm. Um, It didn't make me, and at no time ever have I regretted having um, my baby. All she's doing is offering um a voice that's not heard a huge amount yeah and she's actually making she's kind of like asking women to forgive themselves yeah um for you know to say here is me mm. the successful woman decided i couldn't do that as well not as well as i'd like to do it so opted out of it and also here's the other key. i don't think it's like a personal slight no, oh god i've no. had a baby so i'm fucked or that you're trying to do something that will be impossible but i the other thing is as well that is a key part of what she says in the interview 
which I think it will probably be glossed over is that she said I I couldn't have it and and maybe neither did I want to which is why I think that primal thing is interesting is that maybe she didn't want to have a family deep down somewhere you know and 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 maybe that's okay like the primal urge is different in different people as well yeah like and in and in and in men in men mm. too you know I think we're all just because you all contain the same sort of something doesn't mm. mean your levels aren't <laughs> yeah or, or maybe the pull for another type of life is more all-encompassing than the pull for for children and i get that they're expensive fuckers yeah totally and they have all those holidays you can take in houses on stilts and they're annoying see zadie has been wailing throughout the entire podcast that's very bitchy of dolly she's <laughs> ill she's ill and when dolly's no. ill all she does is wail <laughs> I love her. I, I'm so in love with her that Pandora had to prise her off me today because I was letting her put her entire hand in my mouth. <laughs> no, I think it's. Um, I think it's great that she spoke truthfully about it. I think um, you know the more truthful voices mm. on women's issues, the better. Something that made me quite sad recently, though, is that a lot of I don't know if you've noticed that a lot of women are speaking more openly about their births particularly traumatic births mm, and mm. the birth trauma awareness week which is something i've flagged i think on the podcast before is something that's really kind of gathering momentum i think that's really important i think that people should know how traumatic birth is if only to prepare themselves and if only to be like a little bit more forgiving on a woman for what yeah. she goes through but there's been a real rise in tocophobia which is the fear of giving birth and mm. there was a piece in grazia last week from um, a woman saying that she wished everyone would stop talking about it because it's put her off from having a baby. And I empathised with that woman, but I also thought that's a very dangerous thing you're encouraging women to do. You are encouraging them to silence themselves about a huge event Mm. in case it puts women off. Mm. In all honesty, if the thought... A phobia is something else, but in general terms, I would say, if the thought of having a baby puts you off having the baby, that is a sign that you're not in the place to have a baby. Mm. It's like when people say to me, God, did you get really fat when you were pregnant? Were your boobs just monstrous when you had the baby? Yeah, and yeah. But I saw those as byproducts yes, of wanting exactly. a child. So in all honesty, if these things put a woman off, no bad thing, maybe it's not for you. Mm. I really, really believe passionately that you shouldn't have it, unless it's a happy accident, that yeah. you know you should you should enter into this massive, as you say, permanent commitment armed yeah with all the knowledge exactly all the bad bits and also you know when people talk about the huge physical undertaking of birth I, I what i hear when people share these stories remember nell frizzell wrote the most incredible piece for the guardian about what birth was like it's not it's not just people being like oh it's so traumatic it's so awful or any kind of discouraging horror stories i think it's women just being honest about the physical experience i remember reading a piece that eva wiseman wrote about birth where she was like I think about it all the time, that thing that I went through. And she said, after she went through it, it was like the most enormous thing she ever went through. And she said, after after weeks after it ended, she was like, I still wanted to talk about it. It still was this huge thing that I'd experienced. It It's physically changing. It's life changing. It changes the order of the world for you. It's massive. And damn fucking right that women should be allowed to talk about that without being accused of, oh, you're going to scare all these women off. It's important. It's important to talk about it. And I agree with you, but it's definitely something that I think about every single day, even if it's not something I vocalise. But I'd like to uh, end this topic on a very important note, which is if you can't have it all, 
maybe you should just have it off. <laughs> That's a very novel and niche way to um, end a pretty weighty subject, Pandora. Thank you very much. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The news has been awash this week with Brett Kavanaugh, the Republican and judge in America accused of sexual assault in 1982 by a psychology lecturer, Christine Blasey Ford. Dr. Ford was 15 when a 17-year-old Kavanaugh allegedly assaulted her at a party. She accuses Kavanaugh of pushing her onto the bed and attempting to remove her bathing suit and rape her while putting his hand over her mouth to stop her from crying out for help. Dr. Ford described an intoxicated Kavanaugh as laughing with his friend, classmate Mark Judge, who for reasons no one can fathom has not yet been subpoenaed. Why the story continues to make front-page global headlines is not just because Kavanaugh is accused of assault, but because he is Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, the highest lawmaking body in the States, and given the geopolitical power of the US, that cannot be underestimated. In the wake of these allegations, several people, including Trump, still want to see him in the Supreme Court. It's been an extraordinary week and watching the story and statements unfold has been frustrating, staggering and I'm sure traumatising for many women who are victims of sexual assault. In fact, I read that there's been a spike in women reporting his, both historic and recent sexual abuse on record as a result of Dr Ford's statement, which is kind of amazing. The journalist Suzanne Moore, who I think has delivered the most searing commentary on the subject in the last week, wrote of the hearing, this is 2018 and yet apart from the cameras and the light that Ford shone, we saw a darkness, Gilead, a huge darkness, medieval and frightening. The American horror story unfolds in real time. Have you seen the meme where the picture of Kavanaugh's hearing has been spliced with a picture of a government meeting from The Handmaid's Tale? No. It looks the same, hearing the sheet. Oh my God, that looks identical. It does, doesn't it? Mm. I've just uh, flipped my computer screen around to show Dolly. Since Dr Ford's claim, two other women have come forward to say that Brett Kavanagh behaved inappropriately with them. Deborah Ramirez was a student at Yale and said he exposed himself to her during a college drinking game. And Julie Swetnick says she went to a house party attended by him in the early 80s where he and his friend tried to spike girls' drinks, which is, of course, illegal. And yet still it's thought that the Republicans will vote him into the Supreme Court. A Reuters Ipsos poll published on Monday of this week revealed that 42% of citizens believe the sexual allegations against the judge, which really surprises me because that is less than half. What didn't surprise me is that it was split pretty much across party lines. Two thirds of Democrat voters believed the allegations, whilst two thirds of Republican voters did not. The Democrats are unsurprisingly furious 
in general. The BBC reports that on Monday of this week, nine of the 10 Democrat senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee wrote to the FBI director, Christopher Wray, with a list of 24 people they believe should be interviewed, including Mark Judge. They called on the FBI to interview all three of Brett Kavanaugh's accusers. The drama's playing out at a very physical level rather than just mere hashtivism online, with two women confronting Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake, who people assumed would break ranks from the Republicans and vote against Kavanaugh's nomination. But then he did a vault fast and said that he would endorse him. I've seen the footage of Mm. these women talking to Flake and Flake looks seriously uncomfortable as they lobby him politely. One of them says, what you are doing is allowing someone that actually violated a woman to sit on the Supreme Court. I cannot imagine for the next 50 years they will have to have someone in the Supreme Court who has been accused of violating a young girl. What are you doing, sir? It's an uncomfortable viewing experience, as you say, but an approach that is understandable, particularly when, as she mentioned, this is a man whose job will literally be assessing the behaviours of others. And I think the fact that they did it um, really politely and um, eloquently... And respectfully. Yeah, is it would have made him a lot more uncomfortable than if they'd kind of roared towards him, shrieking mm. with placards. I'm not saying there isn't a place mm. um, for that. You know, I think marches are definitely the place for that kind of lobbying. But I think that approach was absolutely the most effective and he looks seriously uncomfortable. Kavanaugh has denied the accusation. He says he wasn't at the party whilst his... Classmate Mark Judge says he doesn't remember the party, so slightly different stances there. Um, Footage has shown Brett Kavanaugh furious and crying. He has said, having seen Dr Ford's anguish testimony, that she obviously was assaulted, yes, by someone, someplace, sometime, quote-unquote, but not by him. I think that's really crucial in itself, because in Brett Kavanaugh's mind, he could be innocent, as he most likely does not remember, and... Why he doesn't remember is also really important because we don't remember things that are of no meaning to us. It wasn't meaningful to him what him and his friend did to 15-year-old Christine. They were drunk, they were teenagers, and as we so often hear as a refrain, they didn't rape her or anything. But it was obviously important to Dr Ford. It was obviously something that shaped her entire life. This traumatic incident was committed to her memory and... Too scared to go to the authorities at the time, it took until she saw this man about to become one of the most important lawmakers in the US for her to think, I have to do something. I cannot let this happen. Because why else would she put herself through this? I think the nature of memory is an important factor in this case and this is not to absolve Kavanaugh in any way or imply that I have any doubts when it comes to Dr Ford's um, statement. I think it's proof of the way Brett Kavanaugh and his male peers moved through the world at that time and the irrelevance of a woman's pain and experience. Janice Turner articulated it perfectly for the Times. The assault was not about 15-year-old Christine. It was the amazing adventures of Brett and Mark, the swatty Catholic virgin and his bad boy, hard-living friend. She was just the girl who happened by the bedroom after they'd hatched their prank. She was a frisbee chucked between them. Would they have remembered her face one year later, let alone 36? Because in 1982, I was a teenager too, and this wouldn't even have counted as assault. Tell your parents, few shared sexual secrets with our mothers then. Besides, you'd have to admit drinking in an adult free house with boys. Your dad would ground you for months. Moreover, male impunity was the water in which we swam. Men in nightclubs could grab a boob. Saturday job bosses could smack your bum. Boys push you against a wall. Short of physical harm or rape, you'd keep quiet and learn which men to avoid. 
That this ordinary evening is seared into Dr. Ford's memory, but not Judge Kavanagh's, is no surprise. The guy who violently grabbed my crotch on the tube years ago, the man who assaulted my friend in a lift, the student who committed a 1970s date rape. What would they recall? Memory is founded upon what matters. Maybe Judge Kavanagh did not remember assaulting some girl in a swimsuit because it had no possible ill consequences for him. It didn't matter. Yeah. Dr. Ford herself touched on this in her astonishingly measured and eloquent statement about how the trauma of that one incident has coloured so many of her actions and anxieties right up to her life as a 50-something woman. How to the bafflement of her husband, she's always wanted two front doors, so she has another one to escape from. It is so telling that her evidence includes therapist notes on how it had affected her. There is no way for me this memory could be made up as far as I can see because this memory has been so defining for the rest of her life we don't know that Kavanagh is guilty obviously that goes without saying but evidence is mounting pretty rapidly with three accusers and the statement from a former classmate who has come forward and said that Kavanagh was frequently drunk and aggressive he belonged to a secret society called Truth and Courage known wrote Janice Turner in that brilliant piece you quoted from as tit and clit I don't believe Brett Kavanagh should have his life ruined for what he did to Christine when he was 17 years old. Um, That might be controversial to some, but I think that that kind of hardline moralising isn't societally helpful. That said, I don't think he should ever be allowed into the Supreme Court or to have become a judge or to have any kind of lawmaking role now that these accusations have been made publicly. I don't think he should be destroyed... But neither do I think he should get to have it all or escape prosecution because there can't be a judge on the Supreme Court who has sexually violated a teenage girl and behaved inappropriately to two more and has not only not been tried but is sitting on the most powerful lawmaking body in the States. There just can't. Judges have to be morally unpeachable for very obvious reasons, although I'm sure they aren't always. How would it impact his decision making? What kind of cultural reverberations and and moral and ethical ones would would that have over Mm. an entire nation? Mm. I agree. And as you say, this is not about the obliteration of a man via the extreme left wing, as Trump calls it. It's about giving a victim a voice, bringing her justice and crucially assessing his appropriateness for an extremely important role in public life. I'm not at all surprised that Trump is still endorsing him, despite the allegations. He has said that anyone can investigate Kavanaugh as long as it isn't a witch hunt and doesn't take too long. It's always a great way to encourage a really thorough investigation to tell people not to take too long. As Jonathan Friedman wrote this weekend, the insidious force in global politics is toxic masculinity, of which Trump is the poster boy. It is a swaggering machismo that believes rules are for limp-wristed wimps. It also freaks out, I think, a lot of men who have done similar things. As Janice said, it was not, you know, considered anything in the 80s. Mm. Men who don't agree with rape, of course not, but they don't think a fondle counts as the same thing, which is possibly why so many of the senators are still voting him in. To end on a slightly more encouraging note, Dr Ford's bravery has also been recognised and applauded and encouraged around the world. I think that's important to state because when you're watching inside that hearing, it's so upsetting and frustrating to hear how people are patronising and mocking her and questioning her legitimacy. And she's so uh, graceful and calm and he's so belligerent, Mm. isn't he? Mm. And he's so... as, as. Producer CJ pointed out he's just so rude mm. to so many and of childish. The people. Yeah, um, but it's important to note how much public support 
that has been around the world for her. She's inspired a number of high-profile women to share their stories, such as the actor Jemima Kirk, who wrote a social media post detailing how she was raped by her drug dealer and how even those close to her handled it with a language and an attitude that made her feel a degree of shame and responsibility. I cannot imagine how traumatising it must have been to go through this, but to then share it in a public forum for the greater good of supporting another woman's story in hopes of changing a world that makes this all too common an experience for women. And Lena Dunham, actually Jemima Kirk's best friend, wrote an Instagram post in response to Jemima's story that I'd just like to quote from. The last few days have been brutal as we've watched a remarkably brave woman be strong, armed by cowardly fools who aren't fit to shine her shoes. I know it's triggered pain in all of us, each of a different variety, but there is a common thread. Shame. Shame is destructive. Shame kills. I have shame about my assaults. I have deep and impenetrable shame about when I've allowed my mind to be colonised and I've shamed another woman. May I learn from this shame. May I walk in the light. May I honour her. Honour women always. I'm glad that she acknowledged um, mm. the decision she made to speak against the woman that accused a friend of hers last year. Mm. Um, because I don't hold her accountable to that forever like the internet seems to. But I think if she's going to comment on um, sexual assault public that's been made public, she has yes. to address... Um, that recent incident, yes. That recent incident. But I, I think it was... Um, I think it's powerful for her to acknowledge the culture of shame that mm -hmm. has kept women so scared and silent. I, I think it's a great piece of writing from her. Janice Turner called Kavanagh versus Ford a litmus test of our times. Now we just have to wait to see what colour the paper turns. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the High Low. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts. You can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.